Andy Media. In Wollongong in the early 70s, it was very difficult for women in the sense that they couldn't find work. And, you know, in, 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 it, it might have been all right if they had a, a husband or so on, but it was very difficult for them. Um, women did need work, whether they were single mums, whether they were um, in a relationship, whatever. They, things were quite uh, desperate. So women needed jobs. And the biggest employer in town was BHP at the Steelworks. Also, BHP owned or partly owned all of the industry's um, subsidiaries and so on that serviced the steelworks. And, they, and women just couldn't get jobs. So it was also coincided with the women's liberation movement, which was growing at the time, where women were getting together and campaigning for such things as, you know, the right to work um, and free childcare and, and, and a whole range of other issues that related to women. So a group of women in Wollongong decided that they would target BHP and so they took a number of actions and it was quite exciting in this particular period of 1973 where the women, first of all, um, chained themselves to the gates of BHP um, in order to draw attention to the fact that they couldn't get work there. And this was also at a time when men were getting jobs within days at the steelworks and they had... They had a very large turnover of workforce at the steelworks, so they were always in need of workers. And around this time, they also asked the Australian government to bring in 800 new workers, new migrant workers, to fill jobs that couldn't be filled at the steelworks. So they were jobs. They just weren't available to women. They chained themselves to the gates, and they got a lot of bad publicity. Um, the interviews and research that we did at the time showed that the media was not sympathetic to women's issues or women getting jobs. They were seen as men's jobs. Um, um, it was just seen that, yeah, men needed the jobs because they were the breadwinners and those sorts of things. So also at the time, it, it, the women in Wollongong did a work-in, what was called a work-in, but they based it on the fact that the BLF at the time was encouraging women to get jobs in construction, where, again, they weren't getting the jobs, by joining the union, then they would go onto the work site and start working. When they were thrown off the site because they weren't actually employed there, the men would walk off and say, these are union members, um, we're on strike until you employ these workers, in which case the women would get work. So the women in Wollongong decided that they would try that tactic, even though they knew they would probably get arrested. You said that there was backlash, uh, no doubt, from the company and sort of the right-wing press and so on, but that uh, dimension of trade union support, uh, you mentioned the BLF, but was there support from, I believe it's the Federated Iron Workers Association, was one of the unions that covered BHP workers. Was there a backlash uh, from, from that union or other unions to, to this campaign? Well, interestingly enough, in Wollongong, well, it, in the Federated Iron Workers nationally, it was a groupers union. If you remember, the groupers were right-wing unions. They didn't believe in um, uh, women getting jobs in male-dominated industries. Laurie Short at the time was the, the head of the union. Um, but interestingly enough, the only branch which did support the women and had elected a grassroots leader as an organiser was the FIA in Wollongong. And so they did get support from the local branch of the FIA, much to the, you know, ire of the National Union, uh, who did not want to see this campaign uh, run by women and supported by the union.
Now, this protest action that you've described, if we jump ahead a few years later, in some ways it was the catalyst for a wider campaign for female employment in these sorts of heavy industries. There was the the Jobs for Women campaign inspired by the Working Women's Charter that uh, had originated in the United Kingdom. This is now talking about the late 70s and early 80s, which led to a 13, 14-year-long legal action that finally won some justice for uh, women who'd been discriminated against in, in these jobs. Talk a little bit about that that broader campaign that, that took place later on, and I understand you're you're looking to make a feature film about the, that Jobs for Women campaign. That's right. So after the work-in was successfully um, taken up by the media and BHP, who doesn't like bad publicity, um, came out and said, okay, we'll employ some women. And a couple of hundred women got employed. But the women who did not get employed were the activist women. So the women who chained themselves to the gates, the women who snuck into BHP and did the work in, did not get jobs. Um, they employed a few hundred women over the next few years. And as those women left, they were not replaced. So by 1980, there were very few women again working in the steelworks. And still the demand for, for jobs for women was very high. The big difference between the 1973 Jobs for Women campaign and then the actions taken in 1980 was the 1977 New South Wales anti-discrimination legislation. And so in 1980, they were able to utilise this legislation. It was the first class action that won in Australia was was the Jobs for Women campaign in 1980. Um, what happened was a number of women in 1980 um, uh, uh, took up the, the campaign for jobs and they became very innovative and they took up the idea of a tent embassy like the one in Canberra that had been um, established there. And they set up a tent embassy outside the steelworks in the most busiest place with the station there, the big main road, and you know it was quite where workers went to work. And they started to collect, you know, um, uh, names uh, on a petition to allow them to work from the workers, and they got a good response. Um, they were opposite the employment office as well, and there'd been some publicity in the local press which said that there was a Jobs for Women campaign, and many of the migrant women read it and thought that it meant that BHP was um, starting to give jobs to women. So there was sort of this rush down to the employment office, and when they came out and said, we were just told there were no jobs for women... Opposite was his tent embassy with a number of women saying, come here, come here, join our campaign. And as a result, 700 women, mainly migrant women, got involved. And so they took on BHP and through, with using the anti-discrimination legislation, they did eventually get jobs. Um, and then again, they got, I think it was two years later, they got made redundant because of the downturn in the steel industry. And then... There was a process of legal action against BHP uh, because they were the first fired, because they were the last hired. But many of the women had actually had their names on the books for, you know, eight, ten years. And so that, that class action was taken up to, um, to BHP to say, you know, these women should have um, kept their jobs because of the fact that they'd been had their names down on the books for a long time, but it was discriminatory practices that allowed didn't allow them to, to have jobs. And they won. They won in the, the courts and then it was appealed by BHT, BHP and it was taken to the higher court and then they won, the women won, and then it went to the very high court uh, where they won and it took 14 years to do that. And the women. So that's actually the story we would like to tell in a feature film. As a group, we felt, well, we hadn't actually made a film, so why would people, organisations, fund us to make a film? 
So that's why we decided to do the 1973 short film, so that we had a film, we could say, yes, we are filmmakers, um, and we want to make this latter film. It's going to be a lot longer, um, uh, much more involved, and taking up all the different issues that were at the time, and, and make a feature film about it. So we are seeking funding for that film. We are speaking to independent filmmaker Jill Hickson, and you're listening to the Indie Media Show on RTRFM 92.1. Indie Media. Now, talk us through, Jill, the, the making of this short film. I understand that some of the filming was done in Wollongong itself. I'm wondering if that evoked a memory, stirred up the emotions even for perhaps even some of the women that worked at BHP were part of this campaign and whether there was any local press. I mean, did it bring up some of that old history for the community in Wollongong? It did. It was very well received in Wollongong. Um, for example, at the premiere, there were 250 people came along. We had women that we hadn't contacted before come up and say, I was one of those women working in the steelworks. So we made contact with people, we ha- with particular women. We had an offer, a woman who'd been an engineer in the 80s who'd worked with the migrant women came forward and said, now I have a green screen studio, which I will donate to the film for free. Um, that was Ludin's studio. Um, and so we spent three days, four days, I think, in the green screen studio filming the film, the short film. Um, we did film in Wollongong. We got support from a cemetery so we could do the funeral scene. We had um, extras. were just amazing. Um, 60 people came out as extras to be in the film, mm. um, mostly from Wollongong, some from Sydney. Um, and, yeah, it was it was very well received in, in Wollongong. It's seen as a great campaign. And you've got to remember, Wollongong's a very a history of, of, a, of union, um, of people being um, members of the union, of supporting strike, solidarity. It's a you know, mining town where there were some major mining accidents in the early part of the history of Wollongong. And so... And the campaign itself in 1980 won enormous support. They got the union support, they got the community support, they got the migrant community support. And I think that's why it was so successful. Wollongong largely supported it. So, of course, when we showed the film, it was, you know, we had so much support, people coming up and saying they just loved it and, you know, it reminded them of the times. And we also, of course, have engaged a number of the women who were workers there. We formed a group called the Friends of the Jobs for Women film, and we meet sort of bi-monthly with those women to talk to them about, you know, what was it like working in the steelworks and get the stories from them. Wonderful story, Jill, and it sounds like it was a really celebratory atmosphere when it was, the film was premiered in, in Wollongong. You mentioned a number of times that the key role of migrant workers in this long struggle, and obviously migrant women have had particular challenges to deal with in terms of limited English and so forth, and access, you know, probably not to, to any kind of skilled work, let alone in, in heavy industry. So just talk a little bit about, I guess, the particular challenges, <coughs> excuse me, that, that were faced by migrant women as, as part of this campaign. And the um, Jobs for Women group, Jobs for Women campaign group, understood that there were many challenges for migrant women. So every meeting had translators, not one translator, but many translators. The meetings were very long because they had to... And, and some of the women who were involved say that the migrant women really understood what was going on because of the translators, because of the time that they took to explain it to them, I'll go, you know, work it through with them so that they understood. And some of the migrant women understood so well they went into their communities and actually literally brought hundreds of women on board. 
Um, there were childcare issues, so they had to organise childcare, even picking up people. There were barriers where husbands weren't very keen for the women to be involved in this sort of campaign. So some women had to, to, to do it without the husband support. Others had supportive husbands. No, there were lots of challenges. And then when they went to court, there were times, because they had to have translators as well, and someone explained to me there was a court scene where there was a Turkish woman being um, uh, interviewed, uh, uh, questioned. The uh, interpreter was a male Cyprian and during the court case literally turned to her and said, what are you doing here? You should be home. This is all in their own language and tried to intimidate her out of the court. So they were those challenges for the women to get over those. And I think through the solidarity of other women, um, they were a very strong and uh, united group of women and they supported each other through all these challenges. So that's why it was so successful. And I remember I went down to this BHP stock... Uh, it was a annual general meeting where their um, members, uh, the stockholders and so on, were there, and women held a demonstration. They'd come up within Sydney, and women had bust themselves up from from Wollongong, and they were just... The, the migrant women there were just so you know, um, strong, um, taking on and explaining to, to people about what their situation was. Such a wonderful story and there's so many lessons there from a time when there were much uh, stronger, more militant uh, trade unions. You mentioned that there were efforts to raise money for the feature film on the Jobs Women campaign. Can you tell our listeners how they can support those fundraising efforts? That's right. So the premiere of the film is in Perth on Wednesday they can come along to that. They'll be um, asking for donations. We have a website and a Facebook page. The website is www.jobsforwomenfilmproject.com. There's a lot of information on there, um, uh, information to donate if they'd like to donate. They could even get the film and screen the film and raise some money that way. Um, we are approaching a lot of organisations like unions, so if you're a member of a union and you'd like to see this film made, you can always approach a union to support it. There's women's organisations, historical societies. It is an amazing story. It's unknown and it actually changed legal history and industrial law history. And it's it's just not in the history books and it's not even being necessarily taught in universities. And we believe that's because it's women's history um, and women's history tends to be forgotten and not written about. And so we feel that we really want to make this story out there so that the people know about it. Same with the 1973. We've had women unionists from around the country write to us and say, we just didn't know this happened. It's like a major action, um, and particularly the 1980 ones, which changed both industrial and, and legal law, no one knows about it. So donating to it, we really need to raise the money to tell the story.